Tony Freitas is going to be speaking for us this morning. Uh, Tony works with Reach Global as a missionary um, that's connected with our church, and he's preached here before, so a lot of you probably heard him. So I want to come on up, and thank you. Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here again and being able to give you God's word on the 23rd Psalm. A little girl was given a task of learning the 23rd Psalm. She had one week. She had one week to learn the 23rd Psalm, and then she had to memorize it. And on Sunday morning, she would recite the passage to her Sunday school classmates. Now, during the week, she caught up in doing a lot of kids' stuff, like playing with her dolls, watching VeggieTales, playing with friends. But she forgot to take time to memorize the 23rd Psalm. And on Sunday morning, when her turn came to recite her passage, she stood up and proudly said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Amen. (laughs) This little girl had amazingly summarized the entire passage in ten words. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. If there's one thing from today's message that I'd like you to take away from this message, it would be the attitude of this little girl's words. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. The 23rd Psalm is one of my all-time favorite passages. It brings me warm memories of my father's World War II stories when he would claim that passage for comfort during times when his uh, aircraft carrier that he was on was under attack. It also reminds me of times of sadness when attending funerals of loved ones. Most of us can probably relate this passage to some life event. It's one of the richest passages in the Bible, and it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. What I'd like to do this morning is let's begin by reading together the 23rd Psalm. It's up on the screen there. So please stand as we read this passage. And what I want you to do is don't just read the passage, but I want you to visualize in your mind what this passage is saying as we as we recite this passage together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now the Lord could have compared his people to anything in the world. He could have said, my people are like bears, they're strong. He could have said that my people are like lions, they're courageous, fearless, and brave. He could have said, my people are like foxes, they're shrewd and wise. He could have even said, my people are like doves, because they're so peaceful and meek. Instead, the Lord described his people, or when he described his people, he called us, Sheep. 
You're going to learn a lot about sheep today. <laughs> As many of you may know or not know, sheep are not the brightest animals to ever appear on this planet. In fact, they have a reputation for being quite dumb and they're very defenseless. They require a shepherd to care for them. They require a shepherd to protect them. They require someone who will look after their smallest needs and who will lead them where they need to be. When the Lord calls us sheep, it may be less than flattering, but you know what? It's right on target. You see, because sheep are so needy, they form a special bond with their shepherd. For a shepherd to be successful, he has to get to know them intimately. He knows which ones will wander. He knows which ones are the weaker ones. He knows the loyal ones, too. He even knows them all by name. The sheep, despite of their stupidity, become, a famili become familiar with the shepherd's voice. They know his sound, and they know his smell. There is a bond between sheep and a shepherd that isn't found anywhere else in the world of agriculture. If you ever come to a point where you understand that, then being called a sheep isn't such a bad thing after all. This passage allows us a glimpse into the unique relationship between the heavenly shepherd and his human sheep. We are reminded in this verse, or in these verses, that we enjoy a special bond with our shepherd. Take notice of the blessings we can glean from this psalm today as we think about the shepherd and his sheep. In this passage, David speaks quite personally of God. He claims the Lord is his shepherd, showing an intimate understanding of the relationship form between, or of the heart of the shepherd. The good shepherd knows me. Let's look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David begins this psalm with the Lord is my shepherd. Since David spent much of his life as a shepherd, he of all people would have a high level of understanding as to the role of the shepherd and what a good shepherd would be. This morning, I believe it's worth exploring why David said the Lord is his shepherd and why we can say the same today. During my preparation for this message, I learned a lot about sheep. I learned way a lot about sheep. You're going to learn a lot about sheep today. Let's just say that. For example, a single flock might have as few as 10 sheep or as many as hundreds of sheep. And a good shepherd knows each and every sheep in the flock, regardless of how big the flock could be. In John 10, it says that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and he calls them by name, and he leads them out. This concept of a shepherd's love for his sheep can be a difficult one to grasp. As most of you know, Holly and myself and my children, uh, our children, our adult children, Lauren and Devin, uh, we were missionaries, still are missionaries, but we were serving in Africa. And when we first began our ministry in Africa, we worked with a group of people called the Maasai. It's a tribe that lives in Tanzania. 
Maasai are known as the most feared warriors in Tanzania. Traditionally, a Marani, which is a young warrior in training, would have to kill a lion with their bare hands to become a warrior. This is one of the reasons they're so feared. Maasai are also herdsmen. Our time with them gave me a lot of respect and understanding for what it must have been like for David to care for his flock. Now, Maasai don't have sheep. They have goats and they have cows, but they don't have any sheep. Now, when I say the Maasai have cows, I mean they have a lot of cows. They've got a lot of cows. In fact, the Maasai believe that all the cows on this planet were created by God for them, so watch out. Keep track of your cows. If you have cows, you see a Maasai in your yard, they might disappear. They determine their wealth by the number of cows each family has, so they constantly are adding cattle to their herd. Holly and I used to jokingly call this the Maasai stock market. Every morning, the young Morani would take their, their cattle out to the best pastures where they could find the best grasses and spend their day watching and protecting their cattle from hyenas, lions, snakes, and other dangers. At the end of the day, they would head home and put their cattle into a makeshift Maasai corral. As the cattle entered the corral, each were counted, and each was known by its name. If one of the cows was missing, the shepherd would go out for as long as he needed to find the lost cow and bring it safely back to the herd. Doesn't that sound familiar? Now I know what some of you might be picturing in your mind, and I just want to make it clear that Maasai, when they go out to get their cow, they don't carry it on their shoulders back like you might see David do that in pictures. Um, that would be really awkward, to say the least. Now, on the Western Front, the Census Bureau of the United States says that there are at least 7.656 billion people in the world today. The Bible says that God knows, God knows each and every one of those people by name. That's the current population. Just to think, that he knows the name of every person that has ever existed. That's a lot of people. Jesus, the good shepherd, not only knows us, but he cares about us. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Bible also says in John 1.12, Whoever receives him, including each of you, he gives them the right to become children of God. Not only does he care for me, the second point is the good shepherd provides for me. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Sheep obviously cannot voice their needs, yet the shepherd naturally knows the needs of each and every animal in the flock. Likewise, the Bible tells us in Matthew 6 that we don't have to pray lengthy prayers with a long list of our needs 
Because God, our creator, is aware of the needs before we even ask him. So I've got a challenge question for you. When you pray, do you take the time to listen to God in the same way that you expect God to listen to you? When you pray, do you take the time to listen to God that you expect God to take to listen to you? Prayer is a two-way conversation. Are you listening for his answer? Or are you waiting for what you asked for? Remember that God will always, 100% of the time, give us what he wants us to ask him for. He will 100% of the time give us what he wants us to ask him for. He leads us to a place where we can do just that. Seek his will, ask, and listen for his answer. We don't need to worry about our needs because just like the shepherd is aware of the needs of his flock and leads them to green pastures and still waters, God is also aware of our needs as well of how and when we need them or he will meet them. Once again, the New Testament bears witness on this divine provision because in Matthew 6, Jesus advises us not to feel anxious about our needs. Not to be anxious about what we will eat or drink or what we will wear. It says, look at the birds of the air which the Heavenly Father provides for. Are you not of more value than they? God assures us that he will provide everything that we need. But there's one condition, however. Proverbs 30 Verse 8 says, God shall not sustain the greed that destroys us. And in James 4, 3, it says that God will meet our genuine needs that we will bring that will give him glory. As sheep, he makes us to lie down in green pastures. Do you ever take the time to lay down in green pastures and just focus on what God's telling you after you've prayed and asked him? to meet a certain need. Have you ever taken that time? Number three, the good shepherd cares for me. He gives us that place. He makes us lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. Okay, here's some more sheep knowledge for you. Did you know that sheep graze from about 3.30 in the morning until about 10 a.m.? Uh, when they lie down, they will lie down for about three or four hours to rest. It's almost impossible to make a sheep lie down while they're hungry. They will wander around and nibble on bits of grass until they have had their fill. It's only when their stomachs are full that they find a quiet place to lie down. You see, sheep resting beside still waters is a picture of peace and rest. The phrase, still waters, means waters of rest. This picture reminds me of Jesus who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sheep need a time of rest. They need a time of serene quietness to ruminate, to chew their cud, When a sheep does this, he's concentrating on what he's eaten, just as we should meditate from God's word 
that which we have taken in. We need to learn to cultivate the art of quietness. Psalms 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. He wants time alone with us. He even provides the place. The 23rd Psalm goes on to say, He leads me, in, he leads me beside still waters. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Shepherds are very careful with their flock. And they don't allow sheep to drink water from a river that's swiftly running. Because sheep are extremely top-heavy and have little stubby legs. And they're poor swimmers. While bending to drink, they might fall into the water. If their wool became soaked with water... The weight of the water will pull the sheep underwater and the sheep will drown. Instinctively, sheep know this, so they will not go near swiftly running water. Therefore, shepherds, they might dam up the river for a short period of time, or they might draw water from a well so they could water their sheep. There are other characteristics that sheep apart from are apart set apart from other animals. Like, they're dumb and innocent creatures incapable of defending themselves. Unlike dogs or other household animals, if a sheep falls on its back, it cannot get up unless someone rolls them over and helps them stand on their feet. Did you know that? I told you, you're going to learn some new stuff today. The fate of a sheep falling on its back is determined by many factors. The most common are natural causes, such as dehydration, starvation, as well as vultures, hyenas, or wild dogs. Therefore, an experienced shepherd frequently scans his flock, and he's looking for any fallen animals. If he spots one, he rushes to their aid. If the flock is too big, he watches the sky for the presence of vultures. So we're never alone. He's always watching over us. He then restores my soul. Needless to say, just like sheep, we're not so bright and incapable of defending ourselves from Satan's schemes, especially because the fallen nature that dominates our behavior. Our nature causes us to fall into sin. Later, we regret what we did and allow the Lord to to restore us. We must not make our focus to be on the feelings of guilt, but on the focus of restoration. This was evident in the life of Peter in Luke twenty two sixty one. It speaks about Peter's denial of Jesus the night before Jesus was crucified. Eventually, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter repented and Jesus restored him. In John 21, Judas, on the other hand, did the opposite. He took his own life because he permitted the feelings of guilt in his heart instead of repenting and allowing the Spirit of God to restore him. God can restore anyone who seeks his restoration. 
God can restore anyone who seeks his restoration. We have to seek it. The good shepherd guides me. Number four. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The shepherd is concerned for our well-being. He leads us in paths of righteousness for our sake and for his sake. The good shepherd's name is judged by the behavior, condition, and welfare of his sheep. God has connected his name and his glory with the walk and conduct of his people. Only if we walk in passive righteousness can we uphold the reputation of the good shepherd. Too often we, or I, I put myself in there, forget that our actions can directly have a negative effect on the Lord's reputation. When he has restored us, he's not finished. He restores us that he might lead us and guide us into the right path once again. Sheep have poor eyesight. Some more sheep information for you. They cannot see more than 15 yards ahead of them, so they need to be led. The word righteous is used here in a moral sense. The problem with so many of us is that we stop with restoration and we don't go on to righteousness. If we're only restored, we'll be right back in the same condition where we began. Likewise, the lost sheep who's back in the fold, will be in trouble again if he has not immediately began to follow the shepherd closer than ever. It's very important, therefore, that the sheep stay very close to the shepherd. Remember, sheep are not very smart. They have a predictable inclination to lose their way. They can be in a pasture with plenty of grass and adequate water and still wander aimlessly until they have nothing to eat or drink. Once lost, they cannot find their way back. Many animals seem to have an internal compass that's kind of built within the animal or innate with the animal. Well, not so with a sheep. Once a sheep is lost... The shepherd has to go and find him. Spiritually, we're like sheep. People are like sheep. In Isaiah it says, the prophet Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have a profound tendency to desert what is good for us because the grass always seems to be greener on the other side of the fence. So often we go away from God into sin. The purpose of restoration is that there might be a return to the path of righteousness. For that to happen, we must stay close to the shepherd. Most of the problems that we, if not all, face in life are a result of not following the Lord's leading. We can enjoy every little instance of our personal life, our marriage, our career, ministry, if we're sensitive to his guidance. He knows what's best for us, 
and he will help us to achieve our goals as long as they're pure and within the parameter of his will. And now we've come to the part of life that we do our best to avoid in this passage here, which is where we go through the shadow of death. Nobody wants to go through the shadow of death. The good shepherd protects me. Point number five. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When you're going through those dark valleys, whether it's the valley of temptation or loss, sadness or sickness, when you see wolves coming at you with their teeth bared and they're howling at you, turn and look at your shepherd. His rod and his staff will comfort you. You know that he will do that because he rose from the dead. And he's more powerful than anything Satan's going to throw at you. The phrase shadow of death portrays death as a deep shadow, a deep darkness. This image of death complements this passage because the shepherd at times has to lead his flock to feeding grounds across ravines and sharp cliffs. Apart from the risk of a slippery foot, chances are high that the ravines are inhabited by wild animals. Yet the sheep that follow the path of the shepherd don't need to worry about cliffs or predators because as it says in 1 Samuel, the shepherd will always defend his sheep. What about the valley experience? Each one of us at some point or time in our Christian walk will encounter a valley a valley that we have to pass through that will produce worry and fear in us. What will comfort us when this happens? The answer is the promises of God and the Holy Spirit. They become his presence, his rod, and his staff will be a comfort to us when this happens. I'm going to give you a few examples. Does your valley cause you to be worried, anxious, afraid, or troubled? God will give you peace. In John 14, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Or does your valley cause you to be afraid of being alone? God promises that he will never leave you. In Deuteronomy 31, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Problems are not absent in life. There are certain seasons where the very existence of those problems can feel, make our life feel threatened. Remember last week's passage from 2 Corinthians 4 that Jeff was talking about? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in our body the life of Jesus or the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in our mortal flesh. Carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus can be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the Christian walk. That's our Christian life. The problems will come. The question is, where are you going to go for the comfort when those times come? Point number six is, the good shepherd comforts me. Your rod and your staff shall comfort me. Here we have both. We have the staff and we have the rod. Now this rod is actually a Maasai rod. I think the staff came from a garage sale or something. I don't know where it came from. It was upstairs. <laughs> Your rod and the staff to comfort me. So the staff, for the staff, the rod and the staff refer to a single instrument that has four major applications to the shepherd in, addi in addition to being authority over the sheep. The first application is to fight off animals such as lions and leopards and bears and hyenas and wolves. They usually seek to prey on the sheep. This is what they would use to fight them off if they could get them out of the stand. This is a rod. This is what the shepherd would use for fighting off wild animals. Second, the staff. The crooked part of the staff, this part right here, is used to gently seize sheep that tend to run away by either hooking it by the legs or around the neck to pull the sheep back in and take them back to the, back to the flock. Third, it was used to examine the sheep. The rod was used to pull back the wool of the sheep to check for rashes, wounds, or defects. And fourth, the rod was used to count the sheep. In terminology of the Old Testament, this was referred to as passing under the rod. Here the shepherd holds the rod over the sheep and counts each of the sheep as they enter into the gate. What happens if he finds that one of them is missing? He places the others in the hands of a faithful servant and takes off searching for the lost one. The rod and staff in all four applications brought comfort to the sheep. In our walk with God, this rod is God's word. The shepherd's staff is a symbol of authority over his sheep. Likewise, God's word is a symbol of his authority over our lives, which brings us comfort when we voluntarily submit ourselves to it. There are four points in the application for the rod. First, the rod will help us resist temptation. Second, in Psalms 119, it says it will help us to stay on the path that leads us to God. Third, in Hebrews 4.12, it says that it searches our hearts. And fourth, in Acts 2, it says that it convicts us of our sin and leads us to seek forgiveness at the cross of Christ. 
The cross of Christ is where we find that peace that surpasses all understanding. It's where we find the peace that surpasses all understanding. The good shepherd exalts me. Point number seven. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. For the longest time, I had no idea what that passage was talking about. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. What is that supposed to mean? These verses describe the Lord's faithfulness to his children, even in times of great storms. Have you ever been in a dangerous situation or a scary situation where you had to ask the Lord to bring you peace? Or maybe you were in one of those situations and he gave you the peace without you even ever having to ask for it. To experience that peace is something that no one ever forgets. For me, it was a warm summer evening in 1989 that would be unlike any evening I'd ever experienced. I could have never imagined that I'd be able to tell anyone what it feels like to have someone hold a gun to the back of your head and tell you that tonight was going to be the last night of your life. I'm here to tell you, I can tell you that. Well, I can also tell you that an experience like that makes you think about how prepared you are for those final moments of life. By God's grace, I was able to escape the situation. It was by no means the end. It was the beginning of walking down that dark valley, the shadow of death. Now, there's way, way more to the story, and that's for another message or two or five or ten or twelve. And there's a lot. It's a big that the story's way bigger. Anyway, during that event, God gave me He gave me the peace and presence of mind to escape the situation. It was an experience that I never wanted to go through again. But never say never. Because seven years later, I'm talking to God, and he's making it pretty clear that he wants our family to go to the mission field. You might have heard me say before that you know that you're hearing God when he says something that is totally about his glory, but yet it's nothing that you would ever say to yourself. So you know you're hearing God when you're hearing something that's totally about his glory, but yet it's nothing that you would ever say to yourself. Well, that was, this was that moment for me. I said to God, well, where should we go? And he said, Africa. And I said, where? He said, Africa. I said, yeah, right. Is this really you? He said, yeah, it's me. I said, are you really sure that you want me to be a missionary? He said, I'm always sure. I said, well then, okay. So we spent 10 years as a family serving people in many parts of Africa. The connection to this story is my primary role was to oversee ministry in South Sudan. When it first worked, it was southern Sudan. It became a country. Later, it became south Sudan. 
eventually, after becoming a country, um, things didn't necessarily get better. They tend to get worse. So just in case you're wondering, yes, it's a dangerous place to work. And the country was in the midst of a civil war. It was a very uncomfortable place to be. But God promised me that he would be there with me, and I trusted him to uphold his promise, and he did repeatedly. I can't count the number of times while in South Sudan minding my own business when military from one side or the other or the police or a drunk rebel soldier would push their rifle barrel up against my chest, point their weapon at me just to intimidate me. Yet each time, God would give me the peace that surpasses all understanding. That peaceful response to their violent action would bring a calm to the situation I was once again facing. I had no idea if any of these guys would pull the trigger. But because of that summer way back in 1989 when God, the good shepherd, walked with me through that deep, dark valley and promised me that he would always be there for me, I repeatedly trusted him and his promise, and he never let me down. So when I imagined the Lord setting a table before me in the presence of my enemies, I think of those times in South Sudan when I should have been scared, yet I was at such peace. At such a peace that I could enter the house of the Lord, sit it down at his table, while in the presence of my enemies, to have fellowship with the Lord, he would anoint my head with oil or give me his blessing. And he would continually fill my cup to overflowing, showing me that he wanted me to stay at the table with him. To have fellowship with him and not fear the situation I was in. Just think about how important and special we are to him that he prepares a table for us. So what does it mean to be anointed? In biblical times, a wealthy home would have an expensive vessel of perfumed oil by the door. It would be used for special occasions when a guest would come and visit. They were greeted at the door. The host would dip his hands into that precious ointment and the head of the incoming guest was anointed. This act in itself meant that they were very special. Each one of you is special to God. We need to know that there's nothing in life that we can face that will be greater than his ability to see us through it. We need to know that there's nothing in life that we can face that would be greater than his ability to see us through it. Even in the darkest times, God blesses us. It may not seem like a blessing when you're in the midst of the valley, but it's not really about the event. It's about how you eventually choose to use the event. Eventually, after a time of healing, as difficult as it might seem, we need to look for those blessings. They're there. Those blessings are there. God promises that in Romans 8.28 when he says all things work together for good.
to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say some things. It says all things. Every situation, every event, there's something happening within that event that's going to work together for good. Then there's the cup, the overflowing cup. In Bible times, there were no motels or restaurants. It was the custom if a traveler stopped at one's, at one's home. They were given an entrance uh, and a meal was prepared for them. However, no other obligation was expected from the host. Only a meal, and then the traveler could be sent on his way. If the person dining with you were quite interesting or you really wanted him to stay, you would tell him in so many words, and then you would fill his cup to overflowing. When he saw it, he would look up and thank you, and he would stay. However, if you wanted him to leave, you would fill his glass half full. This meant that after dessert, hit the road, buddy. The host in verse 5 is a picture of Jesus and the blessings we receive from him. So what about the person who caused me such pain? What about the person who caused you such pain? You know, David was a skilled warrior, a king who won the hearts of his people, a mighty man called and anointed by God. Nevertheless, he didn't seek to retaliate or engage his enemies in his own strength. This was evident in the battle against Goliath. He never sought to avenge his enemy, even in his reaction to Saul's wickedness over his jealousy of David. He believed that the battle and the vengeance both belonged to God, and in doing so, he waited upon the Lord. Sadly, this is where most of us, including myself, mess up. The Lord cannot exalt us, honor us, before our enemies or ensure overflowing provision in times of storms unless we save both the battle and the vengeance for the Lord. Jesus also commanded his disciples to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. So in conclusion, the final one, number eight. You might remember this one. The good shepherd is all that I want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm is a testimony of surety. Satan has no friends. We need to learn this principle. Satan gives his best first and his worst last. But Jesus gives his best first, and it gets even better and better and better. Every one of us could probably write two books, one on goodness of God and one on the mercies of God. His goodness is in his provision for the good times, and his mercy is in his provision during the bad times. Goodness takes care of my steps, and mercy takes care of my stumbles. Yet, all of our days must come to a close. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Yet, when our days are over, can we, when our days are over, we can still say 
the best is yet to come. Can you say that? When your days are over, the best is yet to come. As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The certainty of it is, he said, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus reinforced the certainty that he spoke when he spoke to David in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may also be. Folks, Heaven is a real place. It's not just a state of mind or a condition. It's a real place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Those who are saved go to this place immediately upon death. The kind of place to which we go is a place where there's no sin, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering or death. There's no disease or doubts, and if you're a sheep, there's no fleas or ticks. The presence of all that is good and the absence of all that is evil will be the Christian's final abode. It will be all the loving heart of a God can conceive and all the omnipotent hand of God can prepare. It will be a place of meaningful service. Our fellowship will surpass anything that we have ever known on earth. All around will be that shining cloud of witnesses, the redeemed of all the centuries, serving the Savior, living together in heaven. Do you know what that means? That's a heck of a lot of sheep. There's going to be a lot of sheep. Most of us will have the opportunity to experience that, I hope. Jesus himself will be there. After all, it's his house. It's the house of the Lord. So here's my final ten words. Probably already guess what they're going to be. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. I hope you can say the same. If you can't, reach out to somebody. Ask the question, what can I do to be part of this flock of sheep? How can I inherit this wonderful place called heaven? Well, that's a happy ending. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's so much for us to learn from this passage.